Hello, everyone. This week on the Bradley Lecture Series podcast, we're revisiting our late AEI colleague Walter Burns' reflection on Abraham Lincoln. This lecture was originally delivered at our headquarters 10 years ago to mark Lincoln's 200th birthday. 10 years later, a reminder of the example and lessons of Abraham Lincoln is as important as ever. Carlin Bowman, AEI senior fellow and colleague and friend to Burns, is with us today to tell us a little more about the man from whom we're about to hear. Thank you so much, Wilson. It gives me great pleasure to say a few words about Walter Burns and to introduce this Bradley Lecture podcast. Walter Burns spoke in the inaugural season of the Bradley Lectures in 1990, his subject, Tocqueville and American Democracy. Walter was a resident scholar at AEI. He taught at Georgetown, the University of Toronto, the University of Chicago, where he earned his PhD, and at Cornell and Yale. He also taught at AEI in a less formal sense on many occasions. He was a beloved figure here and even read the Declaration of Independence to the interns every 4th of July. Reminding a new generation of the importance of Lincoln was central to his work. He and Leon Cass spoke about Lincoln to a packed conference room of AEI scholars and staff. Together, they reviewed the Steven Spielberg movie Lincoln for the interns. Walter taught seminars for our research assistants on Tocqueville and Lincoln. Walter was the author of many books, including In Defense of Liberal Democracy, The First Amendment and the Future of Democracy, Taking the Constitution Seriously, and Making Patriots. In 2005, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Bush. In a speech delivered when he was a young man, Abraham Lincoln lamented that his generation didn't face the same heroic challenges that the Founding Fathers did. He called the Founding Fathers a forest of giant oaks who built a political edifice of liberty and equal rights. AI had a forest of giant oaks scholars who tended to the important work of explaining and defending the political edifice our founders built, including AEI's Walter Burns, Bob Goldwyn, Martin Diamond, Herbert Storing, and Ed Banfield. Their task was not an easy one. Walter was a giant in the forest of these oaks. I can't imagine a better way to observe the 210th anniversary of Lincoln's birth than to listen again to Walter Burns's 2009 lecture, Abraham Lincoln at 200. Thank you, Carlin. Upon his death in 2015 at the age of 95, AEI brought together many of Walter's friends and colleagues, including Carlin, to produce a video tribute to his life and work. We've added the audio from that tribute to this podcast immediately following the lecture. If you'd like to learn more about this extraordinary man, I encourage you to stick around. And with that, here's Walter Burns on Abraham Lincoln at 200. More has been written about Abraham Lincoln than any other president of the United States, or for that matter, more than any other American. The amount published is prodigious, no fewer than 16,000 books. Who's counting? (laughs) And goodness knows how many articles, journal articles. I doubt very much whether I can say anything that has not already been said by someone somewhere sometime, but I'm obliged to say something. What accounts for the extraordinary interest in him? Well, he was an extraordinary man, by which I mean he did things ordinary men don't do. For example, his law partner, Billy Herndon, reports that when they were out on circuit, 
the other lawyers and sometimes the circuit judge would be asleep in the same room and Lincoln would lie on the floor with a, l a lamp reading Euclid's Elements, a strange thing for a backwards lawyer to do. The Elements is the geometry book. It begins with a definition. A point is that which has no part. And then it follows with axioms and uh, axioms and what? Yeah. And uh, an, an example. Things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. This leads to propositions, two kinds of propositions. Problems and theorems. For example, describe an equilateral triangle in a, on a given finite straight line. And, for the theorem, in any right-angled triangle, the square which is described in the side subtending the right angle is equal to the squares described on the sides which contain the right angles. These propositions then have to be demonstrated which is done diagrammatically, showing in the one case that the problem has been solved, and in the other that the theorem is true. All very interesting in some circles and for some purposes. Euclid was geometry for almost 2,000 years, until in the beginning of the 16th century sometime Descartes changed the rules. But up until that time, as I say, Euclid was geometry. It's one of the books in the great books curriculum. But what has it to do with the practice of law in the Illinois of the 1840s? My point is, of course, only an unusual intellectual curiosity could have led a man, Lincoln in this case, to sit down and proceed to master it, which is what he did. Lincoln was a, diff, a different kind of man, and I suspect that he knew he was different. Imagine, if you will, what it was like for this man to live in a place like New Salem, Illinois, in the 1830s, a town without civilization, without books, without anyone with whom he might want to talk and learn things, talk profitably with. The Springfield that he moved to in 1837 was not much better, yet in both places something drove him to get his hands on books. Not only Euclid's geometry, but history books, grammar books, Shakespeare books, and books of po poetry. He was an avid reader of poetry. He began with the poems of Scotland's Robert Burns and continued with those of England's Lord Gordon, George Byron, Lord Byron. He started this in New Salem and Springfield and continued it while in the White House where he could get books from the Library of Congress. But what in the world has to name one poem of Robert Burns, My Hearts in the Highlands, what has that to do with provisioning Fort Sumter or deciding whether to defend it? And what has Byron's poetry to do with anything that crossed his desk? What particular interest did he have in Byron? For example, he read Byron's 
Don Juan, which Byron pronounced Don Juan for uh, 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 scanning purposes. What has it to do? For example, the most notorious uh, passage in it. Um, Still a little she strove and much repented and whispering I shall ne'er consent consented. What has that do to do with any of Lincoln's work? I mention it only, of course, it has nothing to do with it. I mention it only because it tells us something about the sort of man he was. He also read the Bible, of course, and seems to have been very familiar with it. Burns Byron Bible, or to turn it around, Bible Byron Burns. Anyone schooled by these people is not going to have a tin ear. And Lincoln obviously did not have a tin ear. It's not that they, these poets inf influenced what he said, but I do think, and one can see this, it influenced him in the way he said it. It influenced the rhythm of his words and the music of his words. And he was, of course, to go back to the question of why I'm interested in him, he was president in an extraordinary time but so were Woodrow Wilson and Franklin D. Roosevelt. He was assassinated while in office, but so were James Garfield, William McKinley, and John F. Kennedy. Admittedly, there is something unusual or special about his assassination. He may have predicted it. He certainly had forebodings of it. For example, he had the habit of quoting these words of Shakespeare's Richard II, for God's sakes, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, all murdered. He had the habit of quoting that. What do we make of that? Senator Sumner reports, and so does the French diplomat, uh, the Marquis de Chambron, reports that on returning from Richmond after a visit with General Grant, the day before Lee surrendered at Appomattox, after returning there and knowing that the war, the war was essentially over, Lincoln had twice recited the following lines from Shakespeare's Math Macbeth. I'll read them. Duncan. Duncan was the king that uh, Macbeth murdered. Duncan is in his grave after life's fitful fever. He sleeps well. Treason has done his worst, nor steel, nor poison, malice, domestic, foreign levy, nothing can touch him further. What does one make of the fact that Lincoln recited that at this particular time, not once but twice? Apparently he saw himself as Duncan. Sumner thought so, but if not, why does he quote the passage? Not once, as I say, but twice. Macbeth happened to be his favorite play. And this, again, is something unusual about a president of the United States telling a Shakespeare authority, a famous uh, Shakespearean actor, that Macbeth is wonderful. Nothing equals Macbeth, he wrote this man. It is wonderful. How many presidents of the United States would fancy themselves qualified to say to a Shakespearean, something about Shakespeare's plays. 
because Lincoln did great things, greater than anything done by Wilson or Roosevelt or Garrison or Garfield McKinley or Kennedy. He freed the slaves and he saved the Union. And because he saved the Union, he was able to free the slaves. Beyond this, it seems to me that our extraordinary interest in him and esteem for him has to do with what he said and how he said it. And much of this had to do with the Union, why it, what it was, and why it was worth the saving. He saved it by fighting and winning the war, of course. But his initial step in this direction was his decision to go to war in the first place. That was not a popular decision at the time, and it certainly was not an easy one to make. His predecessor, the incompetent fool, James Buchanan, believed that the states had no right to secede from the Union, but that there was nothing he could do about it if they did. Or as Senator Seward put it, and he was commenting on Buchanan's last message to Congress on December 3, 1860, the states had no right to secede unless they wanted to. And the president had the duty to enforce the law unless someone opposed him. Thus, by the time Lincoln took office, seven southern states had seceded, and nothing had been done about it. Specifically, nothing about the fact that they had been seized, that federal property had been seized, naval facilities, arsenals, and of course, naval and uh, army forts. Six of those states had formed a new government with a constitution, a congress, and a president. It was, as we say today, in business. Led by South Carolina, they claimed to be doing only what they and the other colonies had originally done in 1776. And on the whole, Buchanan agreed with them. Besides, to oppose these states might bring on the war, and Buchanan had no stomach for that. Yet he was the president and had sworn an oath to, this famous oath nowadays, <laughs> to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And to this end, he was given the powers of commander-in-chief, but he was the last man to use them it was otherwise with Lincoln. He knew very well that, this, that the time had come when the only way to save the Union was to go to war. But he hesitated publicly to say so. Could he say it out loud, publicly, and retain the support of the people who had voted for him? The abolitionists, for example. For them, slavery was sin, and slaveholders were sinners. That was clear. They said it time and again. But their leading spokesman, William Lloyd Garrison, was no friend of the Union. He said the Constitution was a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. And once he set fire to a copy of it, uttering the, 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 the evangelist battle cry, 
and let the people say amen. Well, amen to that. He and his friends were of no help to Lincoln. He said, this was during the Fort Sumter crisis, this is Garrison, all union-saving efforts are simply idiotic. Nor could Lincoln expect any help from his home state newspaper, the Chicago Tribune. If South Carolina wanted to secede, the Tribune said in an editorial, let her go. The country's leading anti-slavery editor, Horace Greeley, of the New York Tribune, the country's leading paper at that particular time, said much the same thing. As he put it, if the cotton states shall become satisfied they can do better out of the Union than in it, we insist on letting them go. An anti-slavery But supposing we had let them go, with them would have gone almost all the slaves in the country, gone to what claimed to be another country, a foreign country, how then would he free the slaves except by going to war with that country? The self-righteous journalists, I'm tempted to say, are there any other? <laughs> did not say how he was going to free the slaves. Perhaps he would have had us enter into real negotiations with the Confederates. But it was his desire to avoid the war that led him to say what he said. Another problem facing Lincoln at this time. The people of the North, especially the Republicans, were almost all of them anti-slavery, but they were also almost all of them anti-Negro. This prejudice was reflected in the laws of some of the northern states. Among them, Illinois, Indiana, and Iowa all had laws forbidding Negroes to enter the state, free Negroes forbade them to set foot and to stay in the state. These Yankees, as they were shortly to be known, obviously did not want Negroes in their neighborhoods, something that their politicians certainly had to take account of when they went around and did their business. Then, I'm still speaking here of the situation Lincoln faced before taking office, then there was the question of the slave states that had not or not yet seceded, specifically the border states, Virginia, Maryland, Missouri, Kentucky. What would they do if he used force against the others? That was a problem. Later on, he said he hoped that God was on the side of the Union, but they had to have Kentucky. Without it, winning that war would be much more difficult. Take a look at the map. And finally, there was an effort, a desperate or at least a last chance effort to avoid the war by way of compromise. This deserves to be treated in some detail. On January 16, 1861, a mere six weeks before Lincoln, his inauguration, the Kentuckian John Crittenden, on behalf of a Senate committee that included the Illinois Senator Stephen A. Douglas and Jefferson Davis of Mississippi, as well as Republicans Benjamin Wade of Ohio and William Seward of New York, 
this committee proposed a set of six constitutional amendments. This is late January 61. I mention only the major provisions. First, guaranteed slavery in the states where it existed against future in interference by the federal government. Second, it denied Congress any power to interfere with the interstate slave trade. And third, and this was the one that caused the trouble, or the real difficulty, it prohibited slavery in the territories north of the Missouri Compromise Line, but protected it south of the line, quote, in all territories now held or hereafter acquired. Obviously, this was not much of a compromise. By giving them so much, the Southern Democrats could be expected eagerly to support them. For some reason, surely because they were anxious to avoid the war, there were the amendments also had the support of some important Republicans, and not only Senator Wade and, and Senator Seward, but certain businessmen and Wall Street bankers. They were all in favor of the amendments, but Lincoln said no and said it emphatically. He wrote to his friends and Republican friends in Congress, let there be no compromise on the question of extending slavery. The instant you do, they will have us under again, and all our labor is lost. Douglas is short to be again trying to bring in his pop sov, popular sovereignty. Have none of it. The tug has to come, and better now than later. Well, the tug came, and with the tug came the war. Question. Would Lincoln have taken so hard a line or refused all compromise had he anticipated that the war would take the lives of, the numbers appalling, some 620,000 Americans, battlefield deaths. Would he have been so hard or uncompromising had he anticipated that? Probably not. Nor, I suspect, would the southern states have seceded had they anticipated the price they would pay for it. But Lincoln was intransigent just as, uh, and, and before blaming him for being the cause of the war or for bringing on the war in any way, consider the alternative to war or the alternative to going to war at that particular time. What was at stake? Lincoln stated the essential, the essential point of this time and again, and best because succinctly, in his speech, the famous speech at the Cooper Institution in New York City in February 1860, a speech that really won him the support of Eastern Republicans. We Republicans, he said, think slavery wrong and ought to be restricted, and they, the Southerners, think it right and ought to be extended. They're thinking it right and our thinking it wrong is the precise fact upon which depends the whole controversy. And by this time it was possible to know and state with sufficient precision what the extension of slavery would involve. First, according to the Crittenden proposal, slavery was to be protected south of the Missouri line in all territories now held 
or hereafter acquired. And by this they meant territories not then or not yet part of the United States. And what were they? Well, Cuba, for example. The Democrats had long had their eyes on Cuba. They tried to buy it in 1854. And in 1860, their party platforms, the Northern Democratic Party that nominated Douglas for president, and the Southern Democratic Party, this was after the party split, that nominated Breckinridge, both parties had in their platforms the acquisition of Cuba. There was no, no doubt about what they had in mind. And not only Cuba, but Mexico, or that part of it which we had not already acquired, and other places in Central America. But even this is not all they had in mind. There was a time when the Southerners were satisfied with some, the southern part, of the Louisiana Territory. This was in 1820, when the Missouri Compromise was adopted. And later, after the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, with its popular sovereignty, I presume everybody knows what popular sovereignty was. A proposal, it was Douglas's baby, really, that the people of a territory could vote themselves could vote whether slavery be adopted in that, in that particular ter territory. This was a very democratic thing. Why not? Let the people decide. Get this issue out of Washington where it was controversial. Get it into the, uh, into the territories themselves and let the people decide. Popular sovereignty. Well, that meant that the, the Southerners then, I think, were satisfied with the possibility of slavery in all the territories, how much would depend, of course, on the vote of the people living in them. This was in 1854. But in 1857, the Supreme Court of the United States handed down the decision in the infamous case of Dred Scott against Sanford, holding that Congress, under the Constitution, could not prohibit slavery in any of the territories, thereby opening them all to slavery and putting an end to popular sovereignty. But Chief Justice Taney did more than that in his Dred Scott opinion. He opened up a far fairer prospect for the Southern Democrats. Slavery everywhere, not only in all the territories, but in all of the states, north as well as south, New as well as old, Illinois as well as Kentucky, Massachusetts as well as Mississippi. How real a prospect was this? All it needed was another Supreme Court decision, and Dred Scott paved the way for that. As Lincoln put it, if Dred Scott, why not its sequel? Or if the Chief Justice could dare the one, why could he not dare the other? As stated in Dred Scott, what Chief Justice Taney said about this, the nationalization of slavery, was only dicta, words spoken in passing, not part of the holding in the case. But they were not nothing there. He must have had some reason to make that statement. There is no reason to believe that he said it inadvertently. It is much too deliberate for that. This is what he said. 
I'm quoting it word for word. The right of property in a slave is distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. The right of property in a slave is distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution, which means that everyone, wherever he lived, had a right to hold slavery, uh, hold slaves. Now, Tony was the Chief Justice of the United States, and therefore his words carried weight, or ought to carry weight. Still, he, his saying it didn't make it so, not yet. And it certainly was not so. The Constitution certainly did not say or even imply what he said it said. My friend, the late Professor Herbert Storing, put this very well. If one had to think of two adverbs that do not describe the way the Constitution acknowledges slavery, he could not do better than distinctly and expressly. Whatever else came from this, Tony's statement proved to be grist for Lincoln's mill. He seized on it and rang in the debates with uh, Douglas in 1858, and he rang the changes on it. He began with by quoting the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution, Article 6, the second clause of Article 6, which provides, in part, that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land and that the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. That's in the original Constitution. Lincoln quoted it. He then constructed the following syllogism. I suppose one could say, here comes something of, of Euclid. <laughs> Nothing in the Constitution or laws of any state can destroy rights distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution of the United States. Major premise. Minor premise. The right of property in the slave is distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution of the United States. Conclusion. Therefore, Nothing in the Constitution or laws of any state can destroy the right of property in a slave. QED, quod erat demonstratum. And what was it that was demonstrated here? Assuming Tawney spoke for them, the Southerners wanted slavery nationalized, that is, protected by the Constitution in all the states, all the states of the United States. And beyond that, assuming Senator Crittenden and Jefferson Davis also spoke for them, they wanted slavery to be extended throughout the length and breadth of the Americans, the Americas, the only limit being the slave owner's appetite, or they would say their need, and the military power of the United States. This, I suggest, is why Lincoln said no to the Crittenden Compromise, or so-called Compromise. And who, or who today, can blame him for that? As to that, I wonder if we, by that I mean we today, are not inclined to ignore or discount the very real possibility of slavery becoming law, becoming lawful in all the states of the Union. Suppose the Republican Party had helped, had heeded the advice of Horace Greeley and other Eastern Republicans, including Henry Wilson, the senator from Massachusetts, had heeded their advice and had supported Senator Douglas 
in his re-election campaign in 1858. That was a possibility. They urged it. They said that Douglas was better suited and more likely to be elected than Abraham Lincoln. Douglas had won their favor by his opposition to the fraudulent proposed constitution, the pro-slavery constitution proposed for Kansas, the so-called Lecompton Constitution. Had these Republicans heeded the, the advice, this advice given them by these people, the, and, and I make this clear, had they heeded the advice and supported Douglas in the debates in, in, the, in the senatorial contest in Illinois in 1858, had they done that, there would have been no Lincoln-Douglas debates and therefore no Freeport question the three-port question that Lincoln put to Douglas. The question was this. Remember, this comes after the Supreme Court's decision in uh, Dred Scott. May the people of a territory, in any lawful way, against the will of a citizen of the United States, exclude slavery from its limits prior to the formation of a state constitution? That was the question Lincoln put to him at Freeport, Illinois, one of the scenes of the seven debates, and it had consequences. By answering it, and by saying yes, that yes, the people of a territory could exclude slavery from the territory, despite the Supreme Court's decision in Dred Scott, Douglas lost the support of the Southern Democrats. And that had consequences, because in turn, this caused the split in the, in the Democratic Party in 1860 and led to the election of Lincoln. Suppose, therefore, the Democrats had not split because the Freeport question was not asked because, and go back all the way to my, the beginning of supporting uh, Douglas in that election, supposing then we would have had a Democratic administration in Washington, led by a man, Douglas, who did not care whether slavery was voted up or down. He repeated that time and time again, especially in the debates with Lincoln, and Lincoln forced him to say that. Led by an administration with a president who didn't care whether slavery was voted up or down, and supported by a party, most of whose members wanted it very much to be voted up the Democratic Party. What would have been the consequences of that? And again, once again, to use faint-hearted Horace Greeley as a foil, supposing Lincoln had heeded his advice and had entered into peace negotiations with the Confederates in the spring and summer of 1864, and doing so without insisting, as Lincoln always did, that the Confederate states agree to abolish slavery. The Confederates were, would have jumped at the chance. And the Northern people, who had grown more and more weary of the war, would also, I think, have jumped at this, or would have been uh, willing to do it. I say weary of the war, but they had good reason to be weary of the war. At this particular time, they had begun to sing a, a song, When This Cruel War Was Over, Apparently a million copies of that had been sold in the northern states in this particular time. The people were obviously yearning for war, 
for, for peace. They obviously had reason to think the war's a cruel one. In six weeks, beginning May 3rd, 1864, this is after the Battle of Antietam with all its losses, and after Gettysburg, and after the slaughter at Fredericksburg. Now we're at the wilderness, across the river and downstream a bit, the wilderness, and then a week later at Spotsylvania, and then two weeks later, three weeks later, at Cold Harbor. Grant's army, trying to get the Richmond, and finally succeeding in doing it, had lost some 65,000 men, killed, wounded, and missing in action. 7,000 in one day at Cold Harbor, dead. As Greeley wrote to Lincoln, our bleeding, bankrupt, almost dying country yearns for peace, shudders at the prospect of fresh conscriptions, of further wholesale devastation, and of new rivers of human blood. I entreat you, he said, I entreat you to submit overtures for peace to the southerner, southern insurgents. But Lincoln refused to do so. By making abolition a condition for peace, Greeley said, you, Lincoln, gave new strength to the Democrats, and so he did. As one of them said at this time, and this is instructive, tens of thousands of white men must yet bite the dust to allay the Negro mania of the president. And the Democratic Party, meeting in convention in Chicago in August 64, adopted a peace, a peace platform in which they pledged to, quote, preserve the rights of the states unimpaired, meaning, of course, the right to hold slavery, the right of slaves. The situation was such that Lincoln expected to be beaten, and as he said, unless some great change takes place, badly beaten. Even the abolitionists were against him. Wendell Phillips, in this case, declared that he would cut off both hands before doing anything to aid Lincoln's re-election, the great anti-slavery man, who, besides Lincoln, was for continuing the war at so terrible a price. Surely not the troops who were deserting in droves by this time, and not many of the officers. As one general said, this was after Cold Harbor, for 30 days it has been one funeral process past me, and it has been too much. But Lincoln, almost alone, was intransigent, as he had been back in 1861. But suppose he had agreed to sue for peace, a peace without conditions, a peace whereby the Union would have been as it was before the war, but with slavery more than ever safely secured, safely secured in those states that wanted it, and its champions agitating for its extension. What would have been the consequences of that? We might talk that, discuss that later. I earlier attributed our extraordinary interest in Lincoln and especially our esteem for him, partly to what he said and how he said it. He was surely a great writer and speaker. In my judgment, he was the greatest. As I said on another occasion, he was and is our national poet. 
In saying this, I referred initially, because of their emotional appeal, to some of his private letters, the famous one to Mrs. Bixby, for instance, or my particular favorite, the one to the teenaged Fanny McCullough, whose father, a friend of Lincoln's from Illinois, had been killed in battle. But I know of no better way to demonstrate his poetic gifts or the awesome beauty of his words than by quoting the closing paragraph of the first inaugural, March 4, 1861. That inaugural address, we know, was written before he left Springfield. We also know, and have reason to believe, that every speech that carried his name was, in fact, written by him. He employed no speechwriter. And we know from his law partner, Billy Herndon, that Lincoln was inflexibly opposed to changes in what he had written, especially on this occasion, March 4, 1861, because he was anxious to avoid any word that might fan the flames of secession. The closing paragraph of the address might be an exception to this, an exception that can be said to prove the rule. The idea for it, and a central metaphor, was written by and given to Lincoln by Senator and soon-to-be Secretary of State Seward. This is what Seward suggested that Lincoln say. I close. We are not, we must not be aliens or enemies, but fellow countrymen and brethren. Although passion has strained our bonds of affection too hardly, they must not, I am sure they will not, be broken. The mystic chords of memory, which proceeding from so many battlefields and so many patriot graves, pass through all the hearts and all the hearths in this broad continent of ours, will yet again harmonize in the ancient music when breathed upon by the guardian angels of the nation, Seward. And this is what Lincoln said. I am loath to close. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic chords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell again swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely will be, by the better angels of our nature. It is not by chance that his best and most celebrated speech was delivered on a battlefield on the occasion of dedicating a cemetery filled with the graves of patriots. I speak, of course, of the Gettysburg Address, a prefatory statement before turning to the address itself. The principles of the constitutions are set down in the Declaration of Independence, a document that appeals to the laws of nature and of nature's God. A God, arguably at least, Michael Novak and I have been arguing it for some time, a God that reveals himself not in the Bible, but in the book of nature, the book readable in our day by astrophysicists and in those days by Enlightenment philosophers and their students such as 
Thomas Jefferson. What Lincoln did at Gettysburg was to make something else of the Declaration, a way. He made it a statement of fundamental principles. He made it our ancient faith, as he put it, a declaration to which we were to be attached not only with our minds but with our hearts. I turn to the Declaration. It is brief, a mere 272 words. It could not have taken much more than five minutes to deliver. In its central passage, Lincoln says, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. Well, what little do we remember? We remember that he said this nation was founded in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence and its principles which we adopted. We remember this because of the unusual way he said it. He didn't say 87 years ago, but fourscore and seven. His Bible reading audience assembled there and assembled elsewhere throughout the 19th century would surely have remembered what he said because in what he said they heard, must have heard echoes of the, 40, the 90th Psalm, where the psalmist says, three score and ten are years on this earth, and four score if we're healthy. They would not have known from anything Lincoln said that this principle, the principle we declared in 1776, these principles had their wellsprings not in the Bible, but in the second of John Locke's two treatises of government. And that Locke's connection with the United States is somehow confirmed in the fact that Locke's words are three times quoted in the Declaration, without attribution, but there they are. His Bible-reading audience would not have been told this because our association one with another is supposed to be something more exalted than a Lockean contract entered into antisocial people in the state of nature who enter into a contract one with another only to secure their private rights. Did not Lincoln speak to the fact that we were supposed to be friends? These uh, Bible reading members of his audience, they might instead, because of the implied association with the Bible, as well as Lincoln's designation of the founders as our fathers who art in heaven, they might also have thought, as they, I think, were probably expected to think, that our founding, if not sacred, was surely not profane. They might also have thought this because, and this too we remember, Lincoln goes on to say, after suggesting that it's possible that this nation with these principles might not survive, goes on to say that the brave men, living and dead, who struggled in this, on this ground, this battlefield, had consecrated it better than he or anyone else could do. The word is consecrated. It means made sacred. Made a battlefield, a portion of a battlefield, sacred? Was he suggesting that somebody here on one side at least was fighting the battle of the Lord, for the Lord? Not all the way with that one, but they were surely fighting for a cause that he regarded as noble, and hence he chose the word consecrate. 
We also remember Lincoln's saying that we should be devoted to the cause, more devoted to the cause, for which they gave the last four full measure of devotion. We should remember that we should be devoted and think about the fact that their work was unfinished and that we, the living, should highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain and that this nation unto God shall have a new birth of freedom and that this government of, by, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. We remember these words. What little do we, we remember in a word? And despite what he said, we remember everything he said. And we remember it because he took great pains to say it memorably and beautifully to the end that we remember it and that school children down the ages remember it and recite it in class and that these words might finally end up in a memorial cut in stone there forever to be seen and pondered by Americans. We also remember his second inaugural, especially the concluding paragraph, the poignant beauty of it. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work that we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which might, which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. The concluding paragraph of the second inaugural. Six weeks later, he was murdered. We say, and I'm concluding now, and I'm not loath to do so either, we say a man can be known by the company he keeps. So I say that a nation, a people, can be known and can be judged by its heroes, by whom it honors above all others. We Americans pay ourselves the greatest of compliments when we say that Abraham Lincoln is that man for us. Walter Burns was at once a scholar and a patriot. And that, unfortunately, in the contemporary world and in contemporary America, is kind of rare. Patriotism is not natural, but has to be taught or somehow acquired. And the question was then, and I suppose still is, how was this new patriotism to be taught or somehow acquired by later generations of citizens? On the one hand, uh, he loved the country thought people had to be encouraged to love it for reasons that had been stated by Walter's great hero, uh, Abraham Lincoln, especially in a free country. It can't be taken for granted that people will simply love the country and do the things that are needed to protect it. This was not simply uh, the rah-rah patriotism of a war hero, which he was. Walter was a veteran of World War II. He had served from the absolute beginning in the Navy. He had seen action he used to like to tell my children he had taken North Africa single-handedly when they were still young enough to believe that. <laughs> and so he had a very powerful sense of what the country had been through. And Walter in particular had a, a sort of odyssey after World War II. But eventually they pitched up in Taos, New Mexico, where a writer's artist colony had been founded. He was going to be the, you know, great American novelist, but then eventually he uh, burned the manuscript. I just decided that that, that wasn't him and wound up uh, going to the uh, University of Chicago and uh, 
Someone told him, well, you have to take a course with this fellow, Leo Strauss, and Walter said, ah, I said, I'll do it next semester, next semester. And finally he did. <laughs> he was very greatly influenced by Leo Strauss, and Leo Strauss said, we should go back and read Aristotle. We should go back and read old books because we can still learn things from old books. And it's not enough to say, I don't completely agree. All right, you don't completely agree. What is it you think is right? And if you start by saying, well, no one is right, but there is no right, you're just gonna go through life chortling and chuckling and being frivolous and silly. And that isn't the life Walter Burns was gonna lead. Walter believed that uh, true patriotism for an American uh, includes an appreciation of self-criticism. We are not expected to love our country simply because it is our country. Love can be blind, and love of country, like love of wife or husband or lover, can be blind too. But ours is not supposed to be a blind patriotism. But he always insisted that our criticism of the Constitution be fully informed, that criticism had to be based upon a, a full uh, understanding. Uh, and it was that fuller understanding that he spent a good deal of his life in reviving. Walter Burns was one of a very small group of scholars who made the founding relevant again and really fundamental to our understanding of ourselves. We take it for granted now that, well, of course, if you study America, you have to read the Federalist Papers and you have to think about the Constitution and the Constitutional Convention and John Marshall, not just the latest Supreme Court cases, and you have to read Lincoln. That was not the case when Walter Burns began writing on these topics in the 1950s and into the 1960s. And he and a small group of friends and colleagues of his really uh, revived the study of the founders, showed why you couldn't understand America without understanding the founders. I think part of what happened to Walter and to a lot of other people is that the left changed out from under them and uh, came to really reject the vision of the Constitution. To be a partisan of the Constitution, which is if Walter was any kind of partisan, I think that was his party, by late in his life meant that he was a conservative by default, but I don't think he was a conservative in the way that the conservative movement understands that term. I can see how Walter would be uncomfortable with the term, and a lot of people of his generation were, but the fact is he and they transformed conservatism in a way that made it more like them. I think what today's young conservatives mean by thinking of Walter as a conservative is purely a compliment. Uh, it means that they see themselves shaped by his teachings. Walter Burns was at AEI uh, when I came here in 1986, uh, and uh, he was here for all of my tenure as president, up until his 90th birthday. He was in the office every day, right up to the end, uh, he was the complete uh, intellectual and, uh, and uh, the archetype of what AEI has always tried to uh, promote and insinuate into larger political debate. When Lincoln was a young man, he gave a speech about the Founding Fathers in which he called them a forest of giant oaks. And I thought Walter very much represented that image. These were people in the founding whom Lincoln felt had greater challenges than his own generation. Walter Burns was one of the giant oaks Lincoln spoke about, and he's left an extraordinary legacy for those of us who are still here at AEI, his scholarship, and his great strengths as a colleague and friend to many here.